like to be paid to shop? <laughs> for a lot of you, that would be yes, right? But thank you for ruining my introduction. Um, yes, I would love to be paid to shop. Well, you do get to be paid to shop if you become a mystery shopper. Have you heard of those? You go undercover, basically sort of research for the shop or some agency to find out how they're doing. And it got me interested, not just in the payment side, but of the kind of things that people might find if they went to, say, if you work in retail, if if you've ever had a mystery shopper, what would they find? What was the report that they were going to write? Well, I actually went online and found some actual reports from mystery shoppers. So here's a short one. Um, A guy goes to a cafe and he asks the guy, uh, the barista uh, and the guy at the till, Uh, about his product range, and so he asks him, uh, so this is the mystery shopper, he says, look, I'm sick of my old coffee, I want to know, can you tell me the difference between an espresso, a cappuccino, and a latte? And of course, this being America, the reply was, I don't know, dude, you just press the button and stuff comes out. (laughs) Not a very good start for that cafe. How about this one? This is a bit of a longer one, but it's a classic. Okay, so I'll actually read it out. Mystery shopper writes, One day I was mystery shopping at a shoe store at a local mall. I went in, I was looking at children's shoes. Two employees were inside, visible. One was talking intimately with a girl in the corner. One was on the phone on an obviously personal, not work-related phone call. I was totally ignored. After five minutes, I asked for assistance, which met with dirty looks and disgust that I had been an interruption. Then an older couple came in and sat down. The lady got out a little notepad out of her purse, which I did look at, and it was actually a shopping list. But both employees that had been ignoring me immediately went over and catered to them. Then I overheard one employee tell the other that they were due to be shopped by their mystery shopper, and they were sure it was this older couple. I heard the one employee say that they were tired of getting bad reports and getting in trouble. So they absolutely fell all over this couple, this older couple, while continuing to ignore me, the actual mystery shopper. While talking to each other, I heard them saying that this time the reports would be great, no matter what they had to do. They even made fun of that older couple behind their back about how dumb they were, but it didn't matter because they knew that they were the mystery shoppers and they made sure they made a good impression in that time. All the while, I was ignored and treated rudely, while they all but kissed the couple's feet as they assisted them. After the couple left, they were high-fiving and calling people, saying, what a great job they did, as I still stood there observing and being ignored. So as you can imagine, this shop again failed after this report, and the store was soon closed. Pretty tragic, isn't it? Not what you want to hear or see from a mystery shopper. I ask you this question. Have a think about it. Imagine if Jesus decided to go as a mystery guest in every single church. Not just some random weeks pop in. Jesus came. Like, you know that show, Undercover Boss. I wonder what Jesus would find as he went into churches. I wonder how Jesus would be greeted, how he'd be welcomed. And what if he Like back in his day, he came not as the well-to-do, educated, middle-class, professional, respected segment of our society that a lot of churches have. What if he came as the minority, as the social fringe, as the guy you wouldn't really look twice at if you passed by on the street, 
And what if Jesus brought with him some of his friends? You know the kind of friends Jesus had, right? Prostitutes, cheats, tax collectors, terrorists, zealots. Would he, would they be welcomed? Would they be welcomed at our church? Now, I want to suggest to you when we think about welcoming that it's actually a theological issue, right? Theology is a study of God. It's a a theological issue, not ultimately about how well we do rosters or how well we train our greeters or hand out bulletins or take out that. That's all the practical stuff. Ultimately, welcoming has to do with theology, what we think and believe about God. The way we welcome reflects what we actually believe about God. In other words, if we are not a welcoming church, then we are a theologically deficient church. Put it in English, there's something really wrong with our view of God, okay, if we're not welcoming. Because our welcome comes from God's welcome of us. And that's the main point I want to share with you today. Let me quickly pray and we'll dip into John 4. Keep that Bible passage open. Father, help us to understand your welcome for us. And today, may we here be even better at welcoming because of the way you've welcomed us. Amen. Okay, um, your outlines are in the paper bulletins or Zach pages, which will actually only be around for another three weeks, Zach pages. The developer had to close, so we're back to paper, which is great, it's fine. Um, but you can also be a little bit, um, I'm going to go loose on the, on the um, outline, so you know, if I'm not following points, don't worry about it. All right. Um, John chapter 4, that passage that Lisa read, uh, I don't have time to go through it in detail. I'm sort of going to springboard off it today. But you'll see that in this interaction, some really interesting uh, interesting things happen. Some interesting conversations. Uh, Jesus will ask questions that are at times really rude, almost very direct. Um, It seems to be putting her down. And it just goes on these tangents. But where it ends up is this, okay? Where it ends up is this. This woman who thought that she was being asked to be hospitable to Jesus. Remember, Jesus asked her for water. She thought she was being asked to be hospitable. Actually, in fact, at the end of this chapter, you're going to see that it wasn't about her welcoming Jesus, but about Jesus welcoming her. Right? About Jesus welcoming her, essentially, into the family. She was totally set up by Jesus, so that by the end of the chapter, she would be belong to Jesus and be one of His. And you see that this has a huge effect. So if you skip with me to the end of the chapter, we didn't read before, but verse 39, she goes back to a village, and this is what happens, because it doesn't just affect her. Look what happens in 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She goes and tells them, He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged Him to stay with them, and He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. What are they doing at the end of the chapter? Her whole town now welcomed Jesus and the disciples. So this starts off as a hospitality thing, right? Jesus asks her for water. It ends up with their whole town welcoming Jesus because between the beginning and the end, something happens to her and indirectly to them, the whole town. And that is Jesus welcomes them. Now that's a really important thing. As we start, and this is the re- the really what I'm get at, getting at. Our welcome comes from God's welcome. This is the logic of the gospel, the good news. Right? actually starts by experiencing what God has done for us. It's what Jesus does to her that overflows into her and their welcome. Because if you think about it, what kind of welcome 
What kind of love does God actually ask of us, His people, if you're a follower of Jesus? It's not just like and welcome those who everyone else finds easy to welcome, yeah? I mean, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, doesn't He? To bless those who curse you. See, what God asks of His people is utterly impossible. It's impossible. Christianity is the only religion that says, love your enemies. And that is an impossibility, as we saw actually even a few weeks ago on Compassion Sunday, right, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's an impossibility unless you've first been welcomed by God, unless you've had Jesus come to you and say, come to me, I welcome you. And if you've experienced that, then you're able to do the impossible. But it starts with that. So <clears throat> what we're going to do is dip into this passage, look a little bit about at Jesus' welcome and how he does four things in this short little story. So what do we learn about God's welcome? Firstly, it's barrier breaking, right? It's barrier breaking. I want to point to A if you're following. Now, if you think about it, barriers are really often the things that we get caught up in when we're finding it hard to welcome people, whether it's as a group or even finding it hard to make friendships individually, right? We find that there are barriers. Here's a thought experiment. If I was, fill in the blanks, I would find it hard to fit in at Sweck Bankstown. What would you put in the blank? If I was blank, I would find it hard to fit in at this church. Right? You could probably, every church would find that there's a bunch of things they could put in that blank. Because they're the things that we'll find as barriers. So I had a quick think. I think if I was divorced, disabled, long-term unemployed, English is my second language, a refugee, a smoker, if I was uh, Arabic, African, Middle Eastern, if I uh, you know, was a druggie, uh, an ex-criminal, been to jail, LGBT, I, I think you know, the list could be endless, but I think if I was those, I would find it hard to fit in here. And I'm the pastor. This is how I honestly see us. Now, this isn't a guilt trip or anything. It's just to show you that barriers exist, don't they? Every church has them. But the first thing we learn about Jesus is he breaks barriers. And there are four barriers that Jesus breaks. And that's why in this conversation with the woman, she is so shocked, even at his initial request for water. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The first barrier, there's four, is a racial barrier. Um, the translation's not quite strong enough in the brackets. Right? It's actually, literally, that Jews don't even use the same utensils as the Samaritans. In a culture like theirs, like a lot of your cultures, sharing a meal is a really important part of socializing. If you can't even share utensils, even after it's been washed, it's, it's really a symbol of two groups who are completely separated. It's a little bit like the apartheid policy in South Africa a few decades back, or in India, the caste system, all right, or, or you know, pre-civil rights America, right? It's don't touch, don't associate, don't intermarry. This was what Jews and Samaritans were like. And again, if you were with us three weeks ago on Compassion Sunday, you would have heard the Samaritans... And Jews had this relationship, well, didn't have this relationship because the Samaritans used to be Jews hundreds of years ago, 
but had been racially and religiously compromised. So they looked down on Jews, and Jews especially looked down on them. So Jesus, by even speaking to her, crosses a first racial barrier. The second barrier is a gender barrier. You know that Jewish men wouldn't even converse publicly with Jewish women, especially if they weren't married to each other, let alone Samaritan women. And here is Jesus, a Jewish man. That's why she says, how is it that you are a Jew and I am a woman, a Samaritan woman? How is it that you're asking me for water? A gender barrier in that society was crossed here. Thirdly, a religious barrier. Samaritans set up an alternative religion, right, with an alternative Bible, even though they originally came from the Jews. Now, in our society, that's not a big deal. We have, you know, Buddhists up and down the street. We have Muslims, you know, neighbors, and we're all sorts of religions. And we generally don't fight about it, and that's a great thing. But if you think of countries where religion does mean war and bloodshed, that is the kind of situation that Jesus was in. Samaritans and Jews didn't share a religion. It in fact had a lot of hostility. Number four, there was a moral barrier. That is, the woman was on a morally different level to Jesus in terms of her, how she was, how she was regarded. You see, why is it that this woman came out to draw water in the middle of the day and why was she alone? You don't come out in the middle of the day in the hot Palestinian sun alone when all the other women would have come in groups early in the morning or late in the afternoon to avoid the heat. Why was she alone in the middle of the day? Well, Jesus, in his questions to her, brings it out, yeah? Because Jesus knew that even among her own people, she was known as, and there are some really unnice words I could say here, but I won't. I'll just use the words shady lady. She was a shady lady, right? She has had five husbands and one living. That's, you know, big deal even by our standards today. She could only come alone. She was a moral outcast even in her own society. So you see why she was so astounded. Right? It was difficult for her to give the cup of water to Jesus, to welcome Jesus, not because of who Jesus was, but because she, of who she was. The fact that he would even talk to her crossed four big barriers. And so it reminds us that no matter how big the barriers we might have as a group of people or as individuals, they are nothing compared with the big barriers that Jesus crossed to get to her, but also the barriers that God crossed to get to us. Because Jesus and her is really a picture of God and us. I mean, consider the distance between us and the God of the universe. It's a huge distance. And it's not even just a spatial distance. I mean, why should God welcome us? Uh, just think, in terms of being, of, of what and who we are compared with God. We are human, He is God. We are dust, He is divine. Our lives are a breath. God never had a beginning, nor will He ever have an end. We are limited in so many ways. Our ability, our understanding, our power. God is infinite in every way. He is omnipotent, right? Can do everything. Omniscient, knows everything. Omnipresent, can be everywhere. Just even in terms of being, we're so far apart. But most of all, the Bible says there's this thing that's a real barrier between us and God, and it's called sin. 
It's called our rebellion and rejection of God. It's called the stain on our lives morally. And we can compare with others and think, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. But how can you compare with God? Who the Bible says is so holy and pure that a speck of sin would simply burn up in His presence. Where it says He dwells in unapproachable light. When I look at myself, when I'm honest, and realize I'm so full of darkness. Do you see the barrier between us and God? Should God welcome us? Do we have any right to have God welcome us? The answer is, of course, no. And yet we see here that God does in Jesus, breaking every single barrier to come to us. And that's where it starts as a welcoming church. No matter what barriers, once we understand what barriers God crossed, that begins to change us. The second thing, Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus, well, first he speaks first. He asks her for water. But that's a setup, as I said. All along, he's wanted to give her water. Yeah? A different kind of water. Living water, he mentions. I'll come to that later. And so all those uncomfortable questions that he asks her is not to shame her. You know, he's asking about her past, revealing that she's had five husbands. It's not to condemn her when jesus asks questions he already knows the answer so he's not asking stuff that he didn't know but what's he trying to do if you read that and we don't have time to go through any detail but every step of the way jesus is trying to lead her to see that she needs what he can give her you see he's trying to lead her to see that only he has what she really needs and he's offering the same to all of us It's called living water, the stuff that really satisfies, the stuff that will never dry up. That's what he was offering her. But he takes the initiative, you see. He begins by just simply asking her, do you have some water? Now, if you've become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and there are people here who've only more recently become Christians, you know, from a human point of view, you might be able to think of the time when you started searching. You know, it might have been coming to fresh or something like that being invited, or just stuff going on in life, and you think, yeah, I'm going to find out more. And it's true, right? It's true. The stuff happened that got you started. But behind all that, the Bible says, actually, you wouldn't have even started searching for God if He hadn't searched for you first. He hadn't begun the process. You wouldn't have even been interested, you see? This is what it's like. Jesus, God, takes the initiative when it comes to saving us. It's like Jesus with that tax collector Zacchaeus, if you know the story. Right? Zacchaeus, the guy up in the tree, again, a social outcast. No one likes him. He's a tax collector. He's a cheat. He's a fraud. Jesus goes up to him, looks up at him when there was crowds around him, and he says to Zacchaeus, of all people, calls him by name, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your place. Changes his life. It's like Jesus' parable of the, the lost sons or the prodigal sons. The father is not waiting for the son to come back from his manor. He's out on the roads waiting for his son, taking the initiative because his son might be coming by and he wants to be there to greet him. God takes the initiative. See, that's what God does for us. And that needs to overflow to our welcome, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy to forget. 
especially if you've been to church for a while, and the good thing about our church is we haven't been along, this, especially this congregation, not that long. So you all remember probably what it's like to be a newcomer, but the longer you've been at church, the easier it is to forget, isn't it? If you get an opportunity when you're away visiting another place, go and become a newcomer again. It's a really, really, really interesting thing to do when you don't know anyone. And when you're in that position again, and Karen and I often do this because we're on holidays, we go and visit churches. It's so wonderful, isn't it? Right? And sometimes you need to do that to remember how wonderful it is when someone takes the initiative with you. Because when you're a newcomer, you don't know anyone. It's really hard to take the initiative. But when someone takes the initiative to greet you, sit with you, invite you to lunch even, right, chat with you, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? When that doesn't happen, and sometimes we go to churches where that doesn't happen, it's pretty disappointing. Third thing, Jesus' interaction shows that it's sacrificial, right? His welcome cost him. Now, how did it cost him here? Well, let me go on about the details, because details are the key to the book of John. John is one of the four biographies of Jesus, written by an eyewitness, one of Jesus' disciples, followers, John. But John often puts in little details, and it's the magic in the details. So verse 6, we read that Jesus was tired. Now, that may not seem like very important to you until you understand that John begins by saying that Jesus is God, fully God. The Word became flesh, for the Word existed even before all of creation. So remember I just said God is omni-everything, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. So why, if He is God, would, Jesus, would God be tired? Do, do you see where I'm getting at? Why would God need a drink of water? Well, of course, it's because God in Jesus actually became human, fully human without stopping to be fully God. But the wonder is that God so broke barriers, so took the initiative that He actually became a man, fully man. And so He became finite when He came as Jesus. And so He was thirsty. And so He gets hungry. And so he gets tired. Just think how much it cost God to become a man, that barrier breaking. But that's not it, of course. There's also that little detail of living water. Jesus says to her, I'm here to give you living water. That's what you really need. It's not physical water. It's spiritual water. It's what water symbolizes. Right? In, the, in, the, in the dry, arid desert, in places like New South Wales now where there's uh, drought, water is life. Living water is the Bible's way of saying that which really fulfills, that which really satisfies. It's what the woman was actually looking for that her five husbands never provided. It's what all of us are looking for. Relationship with God. Eternal life. Filling that God-shaped hole in our lives. That's what Jesus gives. That's what Jesus offers. Living water. Now, how does Jesus give living water? You don't find out here in John. You find out about 20 chapters later. He says, Jesus is hanging on the cross crucified. John puts this little detail in that no other gospel writer, biographer of Jesus puts in. He's dead. He just breathes his last. The Roman soldier comes up, sticks his spear in Jesus' side, right, to check if he's dead. But you remember what John says, what flows out? Blood and water. In John's very subtle, beautiful, detailed, symbolic way, John is getting us to remember when Jesus 
offered living water back in chapter 4. As Jesus dies, His blood shed for us is the sacrificial blood, like the lamb that we sang about, that cleanses sin, but the water is a symbol of the living water that flows from Him, that He offers to the woman, that He offers to us. See, how does Jesus give living water that satisfies eternal life? He sacrifices Himself. It's on the cross that it happens. Because the biggest barrier was sin, remember, that needed the shedding of blood to overcome. And He overcame it when He took our sin in our place on the cross and died for us instead of us. And that's why the living water comes out of His side. And that needs to flow into our welcome. Right? If you're truly going to welcome as God has welcomed us, it's going to cost. Not necessarily money, but money isn't the greatest cost. In our society, we, I think comfort and time, they're kind of worth more than money. It's easy to give money in, in a sense. If we're truly to be welcoming in the way that God has welcomed us, it's going to cost us some of those things. You're most able to welcome new people, especially if you come early. If you stay late, simple things, but it's going to cost time, effort, especially when you don't feel like it. There are those among us here who actually struggle with long-term illness. And it's so encouraging when they push through and come anyway, and welcome anyway. It's costly. I'll tell you another costly thing. Okay, please don't hear this as a, I'm angry, I'm rebuking you. Okay, but you know, we've been hassling our regulars to sit towards the front. Why do we do that? Have a think. Why do we do that? Well, it's because, you think about it, why do we like sitting at the back? Why is it that people often will want to sit at the back? It's because sitting at the front makes you vulnerable, doesn't it? Sitting at the front makes you vulnerable. You can't see anyone. Everyone can see you. Sitting at the back is a position of power. I can see everyone. No one is behind me. Plus, if I'm at the front, you know, the pastor's looking at me. It's hard to sit at the front, but it's really helpful for newcomers and mothers with babies if we fill in from the front. Why? Because it's even more costly for them to come in and have to wander and find a seat at the front instead of being able to sit at the back. And so it really helps if our regulars, again, talking to our regulars, think, okay, it's, it's costly. I'm going to be taking the vulnerable spot. I'm not going to have that position of power where I can kick back and look at everyone else. I'm going to be feeling their eyes on me, perhaps. Trust me, they're not looking at you. Um, but do you know what I mean? It's going to be costly, it's, but it's a little cost that we bear because we want to make every single person feel welcome. Have a think about it. Last of all, Jesus' welcome of this person was transforming, wasn't it? He changed her and he changed their entire community. But I want you to see the order. The welcome comes before the transformation. Really important order. The welcome comes before the change. The welcome brings about the change. Now, it's not the other way around, and this is really important when it comes to our welcome. See, often churches, they want change before they welcome. Don't they? Don't we sometimes? We don't communicate often by our actions. Come as you are. We often communicate, yeah, if you want to come and be welcome, you better change first. You better be more like us. You better be a better person. Fix your life up. Then you can come. That's the wrong order, isn't it? Jesus says, come as you are. 
And as you're welcomed by me, know that you will be changed by my welcome. Right? Come as you are, but you will be so changed that you won't stay as you are. But the welcome will transform you, but the welcome comes before the transformation. And I wonder if, if that was our attitude, whether that would change the way we welcome those people, the fill-in-the-blank people. Come as you are. So here's a pun for you, Hongi. Thank you. God's welcome is not about coming well. Ah, yeah. Welcome is not come well. Welcome is come to the well, just as you are. The well-being Jesus. Okay, there you go. You can have that one for free. Um, because for many, you see, this is the most practical way that newcomers experience, especially if they're not yet followers of Jesus. How are they going to experience the gospel when they walk into church is actually our welcome. If they feel like people accept me, love me, welcome me, no matter who I am, no matter how different I am. Okay, what does this all mean for us? Ignore the whole entire third point um, outline. I'm actually going to throw it to you in a moment. You're going to talk amongst each other, come up with some ideas of how to apply it. Today is Interactive Church Day. There you go. Um, but let me just say this. We need to be developing a welcoming culture, right? Because if we're going to be a welcoming church, it can't just be the people on greeting, uh, rostered on, and our wonderful welcoming team. Thank you for those of you who are involved in that ministry. But if you're doing it alone, we won't be a welcoming church, yeah? Every single person. You might be new or newish, but if this is the church you want to call your church, every single person needs to be involved. So my question to you is, how do we do that? So over to you. Why don't you have a chat with the people around you? And we don't have heaps long to do it, but it's one or two ideas about what are practical ways that we can let God's welcome of us overflow and what are ways that I can put it, you, as I as in you, can put it into practice. Why don't you chat about that for a moment and then, um, and then we'll wrap up in about five minutes. Yep.